Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. Before we get started, a little announcement that I'm sure some of you have remembered from last year and have been waiting for. In particular, our Patreons. We love all our listeners and our patrons. You've kept us going and made the show affordable for this dedicated group of volunteer podcasters to keep running. So in thanks to our existing Patreons, and in hopes of encouraging more of our listeners to add us to their Patreon donation list, we're once again doing our science birthday card. Once a year, for Patreon supporters donating $5 per month or higher, we'll send you a card celebrating an important but lesser-known scientist on their birthday. This lovely birthday card will include custom-commissioned artwork of the scientist and a delightful write-up about the scientist's life and achievements. Every year, we'll pick a different scientist whose birthday we've chosen to celebrate – This year, if you want to be guaranteed to receive your own scientist birthday card, you'll need to sign up to donate $5 per month on Patreon by no later than July 31st. $10 a month Patreons will also get a science birthday magnet in addition to the birthday card, so they can be reminded of a brilliant scientist every time they open their fridge. $25 per month Patreons will also get a sweet, stylish scientist birthday tote bag to carry their science birthday magnet and card around in to show off to all their friends. And for those heroic listeners who want to expand their science coffee mug collection, we'll also be sending $50 per month Patreons a coffee mug with the science birthday artwork, in addition to the magnet, the birthday card, and yes, the tote. Take it to work, and anytime someone asks who's on your mug, edutain your coworkers by telling them about a scientist they've probably never heard of. If you want to be guaranteed to receive this year's Science Birthday merch, sign up to support us on Patreon for $5 a month or more by no later than July 31st, 2019. This is the cutoff for our first mailing. Anyone who signs up to support us on Patreon for $5 a month or more between July 31st and August 9th might receive Science Birthday merch in the second mailing, but only while supplies last. No guarantees on what will be available after July 31st, so if it will break your heart to be empty-handed, make sure you sign up early. If you're already supporting us on Patreon at $5 per month or more, you're already on the list to get your Science Birthday merch for this year. If when you signed up for Patreon, you didn't add your mailing address and you want to make sure you get your science birthday merch, email us with your Patreon username and your mailing address at sciencebirthday at scienceforthepeople.ca, or send us a message with the same information via Patreon by no later than July 31st. We're only doing one print run of each birthday card and two mailings, so if you want to celebrate a science birthday with us this year, and who wouldn't, make sure to sign up by July 31st. We are grateful to all our Patreons who support what we do. And do remember to spread the word. Retweet us, tell your friends, try and guess who we'll be celebrating this year. We'd love for our listeners to support us in any way they can, and your retweets, likes, ratings, and reviews help put our show into more ears. Now, on with the episode. With me is Idan Ben-Barak, a writer in Melbourne, Australia. He has degrees in microbiology and the history and philosophy of science, and is the author of three books, including the delightfully titled Do Not Lick This Book, a picture book about microbes, The Invisible Kingdom, 
and his most recent book, Why Aren't We Dead Yet? The Curious Person's Guide to the Immune System, which he is here to talk to us about today. Idan, welcome to Science for the People. Oh, thanks for having me. So what inspired you to write a book about the immune system? Um, I, I kept, when, because I come from microbiology and I kept thinking about microbes and working with microbes, um, I had been noticing that the human body has an immune system and that microbes interact with it. And I became interested in the immune system. I am not, nor have I ever been an immunologist as such. But the immune system seemed very interesting to me uh, from uh, from that perspective. And the more I thought about it, the more I tried reading about it, and obviously um, not only research articles but popular news items uh, keep popping up in the public consciousness, the more I figured out quite how astoundingly weird the immune system is and how diffuse it is and how unknown it was until very recently. This thing that keeps changing, or at least our, not, no, no, it keeps changing, plus our perspective on it keeps changing. Um, and I, and I tried looking for a, you know, a good guide, a good popular guide rather than a textbook to the immune system and conceptual basis of it. And I didn't find one to my liking, so I decided to write it. The book's title is a little bit unexpected for a book about an immune system, but I, I find it quite uh, satisfying having read the book, which is, Why Aren't We Dead Yet? Where did this title come from? After that introductory phase of going, you know what, I want to write about the immune system, I tried formulating what uh, what a scientist would call a research question, uh, my angle, you know, what is the core of my of my question, what of my of my perspective. And after a while, and this, you know, this is months me going around uh, idly wondering about that, I figured out that it's a it's a sort of engineering perspective to it if you will. It's like what happened if this wasn't here? You know, what function, what basic function does the immune system have? What happened if we don't have it? And the question is, we don't have it because, if we don't have it, we die. That's it. Okay. And, and from that point on, uh, it's like, okay, we die. How do we die? Why would we die? And that, uh, that led to five, four or five different answers. And it, uh, the more I thought about it, the more it felt that each answer actually uh, fits into uh, a perspective of time. So, and, and so I wrote a chapter about each level of the answer, basically. So the first chapter of the book uh, says, here's the immune system in present time. Here is what happens when, uh, when a pathogen comes into uh, contact with the immune system. Here is how it operates. Here are uh, the things uh that uh, together comprise the immune system and so forth. So a, a working manual, I hope, uh, an entertaining and interesting one, obviously. Um, and once I was done with that, uh, I went a little bit deeper uh, and said, okay, the immune system is here, that's fine. How, how does it develop? Which is something that you don't often hear in popular conceptions of, uh, of the immune system. A, a lot of the, the resources I, I looked through just said, you know, here's the immune system, here's how it works, off you go. Uh, and I was very interested in the development. We don't have an, an, a fully mature immune system, uh, 
in, uh, throughout conception, obviously, and nor at birth, nor at early childhood. How does this work? Um, and how does this work as we develop? And obviously, as we know, there are a lot of conflicts between the immune system and the outside environment. And there's a lot to be worked out uh, for the immune system as we develop. Uh, so that took up a whole chapter. A lot of uh, motherhood um, uh, items came up there and so forth. Um, and the third chapter, which to me is uh, um, the dearest to my heart, if you will, is uh, asks it ask the uh, the question on a on a deeper still level. Um, how come not uh, not just an individual person uh, has an immune system or developed, but how did humans come to have an immune system? How does how do immune systems uh, look throughout evolution, throughout the living world. Um, and that, that was to me, as I said, uh, very, um, very central to what I was trying to say. But people think, people sometimes tell me, oh, you wrote a book about immunology and you wrote a book about microbiology. And I, to the right kind of person, I say, I actually wrote two books about evolution, but sort of, um, camouflaged them. Uh, as one about microbiology and one about immunology, because evolution, as we know, it's sort of the basic um, mechanism of, of the living world. And I wanted to show how that um, works in the immune realm. And and then came another uh, another chapter, which uh, is, is I really liked writing because I'm a history of science person as well. Which is how did the human race, now that we have all the all the biological um, uh, perspectives. How did the human race come to find out about the human about the human immune system and immune systems at all? And that's to me, it, it was intriguing to figure out uh, that the immune system, because it is so diffuse, because you can't point to anything and say, you know, oh, here it is, point, point. You know, this is where, you know, if we have a circulatory system, here's the heart, here's blood, here's so forth. If we have a respiratory system, here. We can see the respiratory system in the lungs at work, even uh, even the nervous system in the brain. You can they're tangible. You can touch them. You can see them. The immune system doesn't have one of these, uh, really. You need to know what you're looking at in order to figure out that this is an immune component, and sometimes that takes quite a while. Um, and therefore, up until a hundred years ago, a little bit more, give or take, you know, about the end of 19th century, people, including the very best scientists, did not know that we had, immu- that humans have immune systems at all. The concept was not, uh, was not known. So if you think about scientists like Koch or Pasteur, uh, talking about microbiology, talking about medicine, talking about, um, infections and contagions and so forth and so forth and developing vaccines, without knowing that immunity is a thing as such. And that is astounding. We had vaccines centuries before we had any concept of the immune system as such, let alone a modern concept that understands how vaccines work. Uh, so I wanted to chart out the main uh, timeline, main key points and main uh, discoveries that gave rise to that uh, understanding. And the final chapter uh, uh, it, um, is a more modern one. Said, why aren't we dead yet? We, not just humans, but we as humans living now. We are not dead yet uh, because we have found ways to 
do things with the immune system and help it um, along vaccines, antibiotics, all sorts of treatments that are, you know, have been and still are being developed that are really helpful for us. And I wanted to give us, uh, give the readers a, 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 a taste, perhaps, of the main developments and then what that means for our lives. So that's the long answer to why I gave it that title. It is such a great title, and it really drew me in and uh, instantly made me wonder sort of where the framing of the book was going to be. Um, and I, I quite enjoyed uh, following it through and reading the different through lines. I mean, definitely disease and the immune system really go hand in hand. When you talk about how the immune system works, we're also kind of really talking about how different types of diseases work or try to subvert the immune system or how they try and attack the body, because those two things are so interconnected when we, in particular, when we're trying to talk about the immune system. Yes, that interplay, obviously, you know, it plays out every time uh, the immune system and, and its uh, uh, and its attackers, pathogens, or or, or other elements um, interact. And first of all, you can see the reflection of each in the other. So, uh, whenever a microbe, for instance, uh, comes into contact with the immune system, things happen to that microbe, and that microbe, even before infection, of course, has mechanisms and strategies and tactics and uh, genetic uh, elements that help it evade the immune system. And those of them that don't get clobbered pretty quickly, uh, and we don't see them again. So, the ones who have survived up until now... Um, the problematic pathogens have all these mechanisms and these mechanisms, you know, each microbe has their own little uh, holding bag of of, uh, of tricks uh, and each of them can tell us things about the, our immune system and what our immunity looks for and what immunity does and where its uh, blind spots are. And likewise, uh, if we look at an immune system, we can know things about uh, its history, what happened uh, to it, what which pathogens came forth and so forth. And looking at it from an evolutionary perspective, we can see, and this is one of my favorite um, things to think about, we can see that the immune system has evolutionary mechanisms of randomness and so forth uh, b- built into its very foundation. You can point to the nucleotides within the genes for immune components and say, See, these these switch around. These are variable and hyper-variable regions of antibodies and so forth. Uh, and they, uh, the body um, has evolved the mechanism to shuffle these around. So they have so many, 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 many types of, uh, of ways to find out intruders that may or may not you know, intrude at some point into the body. So we keep walking around uh, with millions and billions of types of antibodies. In, uh, in our body, uh, that will not be used, which will not be used at any point in our lives just because, um, our immune system is ready for the, for something that may not happen. And that's a very strongly evolutionary kind of conception that our bodies bring forth, that our bodies work with. And I think that's just amazing. It is quite fascinating how all of these kind of different components work together and also have different roles. Can you talk a little bit about the innate immune system versus the adaptive immune system uh, for just to kind of set some uh, some ideas for people who maybe don't know that much about how the immune system works? Um, 
as I as I I think um, I I said at some point I'm not I mean a practicing immunologist so um, when I wrote this book uh, I was you know you you kind of transform as a science writer you kind of transform to a um, an instant expert temporarily on whatever it is you're writing about and then you forget. A little bit, so um, I I'm slightly wary of uh, of holding forth about the Nathan adaptive immune systems, and then uh, any listeners who are, who are, who are more knowledgeable than I am about these things going, hang on, he doesn't know what he's talking about at all. Uh, so first of all, I did know when I wrote it, I, you know, <laughs> I enough. checked everything, I really <laughs> did. Uh, whereas my recollection at this point in time of what I wrote might be slightly hazy. Um, I will uh, say something from. Uh, Again, a, a slightly somewhat historical point of view, um, the innate immune system was viewed and to some extent still is viewed as the first line, line of encounter uh, for any uh, outside elements coming in. So it's supposed to be uh, this, uh, the unjust um, um, perception of it might be this big dumb lug who's just trying to uh, weed out uh, anything foreign uh, and whatever um, pathogen manages to make its way past you know the the stupid guard at the gate uh, now has to deal with the adaptive immune system uh, we and, and this was again very generally speaking this was what I was taught as a student in, uh, at university a couple of decades ago uh, but as I was being taught this uh, the view started changing with work by Janaway and others uh, the innate immune system is now it does repel uh, all of the usual suspects um, but it is also more adaptive than uh, than we used to think, and it is also um, very it, very much an alarm system. It can tell the rest of the body uh, uh, that this type of um, of problem uh, is happening. Um, so it's uh, it's far from being as uh, as generalized as being as, uh, as scientists used to think, um, and that that research. Uh, is uh, is currently taking uh, taking big leaps forward, and it's really interesting to to see what you know what comes out of the research labs uh, in uh, in recent years. The main uh, idea is that the innate immune system is here now. It is immediate. It works uh, in a time frame of seconds and minutes and hours, um, and it does the heavy lifting, as it were. Um, the adaptive immune system is a lot more precise. It's a lot more specific, um, and it adapts to whatever uh, uh, whatever it encounters. And but it, that takes time. Uh, it takes time for uh, for that uh, for that system to kick in to study um, in molecular terms what it is up against and to manufacture the adequate response. So, so that kind of response. Uh, takes between quite a few hours to days to kick in fully, and when that happens, uh, uh, the response is very, um, very accurate and very, you know, high quality kind of response. Uh, but but it does take time. Uh, and the other main component uh, of this uh, of the adaptive immune system is memory, immune memory, and that that component of it is why, for instance, it's why we have vaccines, why vaccines work. Um, 
the idea is the evolutionary um, quotation mark thinking, of course there's no thinking involved, but the evolutionary reasoning behind uh, immune memory in our body is that if we have this dangerous thing that happened to us once and we manage to overcome it, we might want to remember it because it might be around our environment, might be, you know, we might encounter it again. Uh, and so we're going to devote a little bit more resources to, to remembering this so that the next time it comes along in a week or a month or a year or a decade, um, we'll be ready and we'll go, oh, it's you again. We're ready for you. Here are the antibodies. Here are the T cells. Here's the entire uh, reaction that we did last time within days. We're now ready to roll it out very quickly. And, and that memory, of course, is, uh, has been very valuable to us when, uh, when we, uh, employ it, uh, in vaccination. We show the body, here is a thing that you might encounter. Um, not as dangerous, obviously, as a, as a wild uh, pathogen, but here are the things you need to remember. When you see this again, please react quite, uh, uh, you know, quite quickly, um, and quite strongly because it's dangerous. Um, so that's been exceptionally useful, uh, and saved probably more lives than any other, um, uh, thing humanity's come up with, I think. Definitely vaccines are something that the human race has figured out how to do that certainly is responsible for us, like you say, saving tons of lives. I can't think of another thing that has saved probably as many people. I can actually, because uh, I'll, I'll qualify what I said. I think in my in my first book, uh, I, I said that in rising order of uh, of uh, life saving, these three measures uh, have helped humanity. Those are antibiotics, mm, vaccinations, antibiotics. and 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 washing your hands. Yeah. So washing the the idea that you know that microbes exist and pathogens move from a, one person to another and so forth that that consciousness which also dates to uh, early to mid nineteenth uh, century with the Zemmelweis and so forth um, that uh, that really helped kick things along let's say but yeah other than that vaccinations. <laughs> It was interesting to read in the book how recently the study of immunology has developed. I sort of thought of it as being a lot older than it is. And obviously, we've had, we sort of known that the body can fend off and fight off disease in some way. But our kind of modern concept of immunology and the immune system is actually quite recent. Yeah. Um and and as I said before, it, it for that reason exactly, it was quite a shock to me that that it wasn't discovered earlier. Now I'm not being you know uh, dismissive of of uh, of early scientists, but because that thing, an immune system, is so invisible, just in in physical terms, uh, it's very hard to visualize it. I think, and that's that. That uh, carries for a lot of things, and uh, you can see that in other uh, areas of, of some of bioscience, at the very least. Uh, I'm not sure. Physics, I think, are more comfortable with things that you don't see. Uh, they've been working uh, with that for quite a while now. Uh, but for uh, bioscientists and medical scientists, um, it's because we the the field comes from a very long tradition of looking at things and figuring out what they are and figuring out what they do and how they operate working with things that you don't see is a lot more difficult 
conceptually and and figuring out that there might be this entire hugely influential thing but we don't have evidence in the field for an organ that you know that produces this uh, reaction and so forth um was difficult so so for instance pasteur when he thought about how why sometimes people don't get sick or why some sometimes people uh recover from diseases what he envisaged um and you can see you can see his thinking you can relate to his thinking he was a laboratory scientist so he when he put microbes on uh, you know in uh, in culture he could see that the microbes grow and grow and grow and grow and then they run out of food or oxygen or whatever it is that they needed they run out of metabolites uh, or they poison their own environment and they die uh and so he reasoned and you know this is a little of course uh, his reasoning was a little bit more uh, uh interesting than uh, than the simplified way i put it but his reasoning was that well if this happens in the lab then why wouldn't it happen in the body they, uh, and his theory of you know of why, of how the body runs out of uh, sorry um overcomes uh, infection was based on the idea that the infecting agent runs out of an element that is needed for its uh, survival and purification um and he he later and after other people he he figured out he was wrong uh but but that was the thinking you, if you can't see it then there's no reason for you as a scientist to to conjure up this you know hugely um complicated thing and thinking about it in these terms you know if we're going by uh you know we all try to follow Occam's razor uh as much as we can so thinking uh about explanations for why we see what we see in the course of disease or infection uh coming up with this very complicated explanation is a bit counterintuitive you might want to go towards something simpler so uh in this case Occam's razor didn't quite uh, give us the the answer quite as quickly as we wanted it's not infallible obviously um but yeah it it took us a while and it took and it took a lot of sort of trying out things and failing and saying well yeah we need to postulate other things and also because microscopy advanced um throughout the ages um we the scientists like 19th century could now see um immune cells and they had to wait for cellular theory uh, to come uh, to come forth and so you had you had to have the conceptual um basis for it oh okay the body is composed of cells doing this and doing that and so forth right and then you had to have the tech microscopes and advanced microscopy uh, for that time advanced microscopy and only then you could put forth the empirical questions and ultimately answers that uh, that gave us uh, our knowing of uh, of the immune system and that's you know that's still ongoing the more uh, the machinery uh, improves the better the answers uh, that uh, that we can get and the and the more interesting the questions that we can ask this section of your book I find really fascinating, in part because of the sort of history of quote-unquote immunology, but also as a kind of case study on how we, how science changes over time and how the best idea of an era is 
in retrospect seems ridiculous or seems outlandish or makes you wonder how could they ever have come to that conclusion. But if you try and put yourself in the mindset of someone Mm -hmm. in that time and place and try and limit your knowledge as impossible as that sounds to Mm -hmm. what you might have at the time, it's interesting to try and find the logic of that illogical solution, I guess. Yeah, that's you know that's the bread and butter of a of a, of a historian of science, and sometimes philosophers of science as well. But that idea of uh, of part, living part of your life in a completely different mindset and sort of unknowing things that you know, and as you said, it's impossible to do that. Uh, but but if you, it, it's a worthwhile exercise. I find in empathy. Um, and, and if you, if you extend that a little bit and exercise in humility as well, because you, you end up thinking, you know, if you're at all a, a thinking person, you end up thinking, I wonder what they're going to, you know, what they're going to find out in 50 years and how these questions, which are baffling us at present time will be, you know, looked at as completely ludicrous, uh, a century hence, and people will be going, oh, these poor, Stupid people! Didn't they know that we all have zirgoblobs and so forth, and that's that's the reason for everything? Uh, or you know, didn't they know about this and that? Couldn't and, and it's uh, it's a very human kind of uh, um, uh, thinking, as it were. It makes you wonder, like you say, in three hundred years, what future podcaster is going to be sitting and talking about what crazy idea that I think is obviously self-evident in the world of science. <laughs> you know, and, and, and accepting that I think is, is good, you know, it's good exercise because it, uh, first of all, as I said, it encourages humility and it does also encourage uh, critical thinking because if you get into that mindset, which scientists, I think, try to cultivate, but we, we, nobody's perfect, of going, I'm probably wrong. <laughs> and looking at history of science a, a little bit, you can see all of the different ways and there, you know, you can see the patterns, uh, all the ways that people have been misled by their era, by their thinking, by their perspective, by their biases, by, you know, by their funding, uh, by their benefactors and by their nationality and all this, all of the factors that go into scientists thinking without the scientists, you know, a scientist ever being completely aware of that and you think that is undoubtedly going on around me and inside me today right then you know the fact that i'm even slightly aware of it uh, helps a bit possibly hopefully hopefully <laughs> it's also interesting <laughs> to see how sometimes this quote-unquote like, wrong thinking of historical science did ultimately kind of point us in the right direction in some way it allowed people to kind of make mental models that were useful uh, in order to keep pushing down the scientific road. Sometimes you need those not wrong paths, but you need different ways of thinking about something that aren't right, but allow you to keep moving forward to the next best model. Sometimes it's just about mm-hmm. work using the model you have until you find one that works better. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, some, uh, some models, uh, like, uh, one of my favorite examples doesn't appear in, in this book. It appears in a, in a previous book uh, about a, a German professor of hygiene, Max von Pettenkofer. He had very much the wrong ideas about um, about infections. For him. He worked a lot on cholera, 
um, other infectious diseases, and he didn't think they were infectious. He he was a strong proponent of the miasma theory. Uh, so you know, bad air, water vapors coming up, they are the ones uh, responsible for for illness and sickness. And he was you know very a, a very very committed uh, to that. Um, to that viewpoint, to the um, uh, to the point where he actually, at one point, uh, as a seventy-year-old man, he drank uh, a culture of cholera bacteria uh, to to make the point that no, they're harmless. And and the weird thing is that he survived it very well, and nobody oh. quite knows what happened there. But he didn't get ill from that. Uh, <laughs> it's an entire historical episode. Yeah, and, and there. There, people give reasons. Oh, he might have had, you know, some preclinical exposure in a previous time or whatever. Whatever happened, he was vindicated in his own eyes, and you know, very extremely so. He self-experimented to that degree, uh, and so he went. He carried on uh, propagating his his miasmatic theories, and he was completely wrong. Obviously, ultimately, you know, proved completely wrong. But and that's a point pertinent to uh, here is that he did a lot of good. Although he thought of it and uh, of, of his theory was very wrong, the practical um, improvements that he uh, he pushed forth, uh, you know, more high, better hygiene, more sewers, uh, cleaner environment, and so forth, that probably saved quite a lot of lives. And the early adoption of it helped hygiene, uh, public hygiene, uh, forth. So he he did a lot of good. Uh, whilst whilst holding completely wrong theories, so well done him, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you sometimes do that. I mean, it, the fact that uh, that one is wrong does not necessarily mean that one's thoughts are wrong. Does not necessarily mean that one that one's actions are wrong. Slightly disturbing, but there you go. Yeah, and just because your thinking's right doesn't always mean that our actions are right either. <laughs> that yes, often happens yes, too, and, uh, unfortunately. And, yes, and yeah, you know, let's not get going on examples here, but yes, definitely. <laughs> you talk in the book as well about uh, the evolution of the immune system, and I found this quite interesting because um, you sort of go through uh, and go farther and farther back uh, in the sort of tree of life from humans to find mm -hmm. kind of lowest common ancestors. And we actually mm -hmm. find that quite far back, uh, the immune system is surprisingly similar in most creatures. Uh, we all sort of have something like an immune system. And in a lot of cases, it's pretty recognizable to the immune system we see in people. Yeah, and this kind of comparative immunology, if you will, I suppose I'm not the one, you know, I haven't invented this. Uh, there are people studying this, but the findings we have, the things we have, when we look at relatively distant ancestors, as you said, fish and so forth, and very recognizable elements. Uh, now, this could be Again, a common immune ancestor, and this could be convergent evolution, i.e., you know, these two creatures, uh, evolved in, evolving similar solutions, uh, to similar, uh, challenges, evolutionary challenges, but without a common ancestor. These, uh, these two concepts, though, uh, do translate into, uh, understanding that immunity is fundamental in nature. And and as you, you you can read in the book, you find immunity in bacteria. You find immunity in plants. You plant, everywhere you look in the living world, there is something that can be called an immune system. Although you know, in bacteria, obviously you know they're one-celled creatures, but there are genetic elements and proteins and so forth that 
fulfill these functions. Uh, so uh, an immune system is not uh, a sort of nice to have or recent add addition or something like that. It is uh, a defining characteristic of life. This response uh, this measured response, it should be said, um, to external um, elements and external challenges, external hazards, and so forth. Uh, now, every everything in, in a living body is a response to an external um, condition, but these are external biological conditions. So we can see that life evolved to respond to life. Uh, and, and yeah, again, seeing this all across the board, uh, and by, uh, by reasoning, um, f- back in time, uh, because, you know, immune systems don't really fossilize very well at all. But, uh, but seeing this gives us a concept of just how, um, just how complicated and just how, um, interlocked, uh, life is. Which, again, I find beautiful. Did you find it surprising when you first started looking into the evolution of the immune system? Were you expecting to find uh, creatures without one or creatures with wildly different types of systems? Um, I'm trying to. This is this is again a, a case of uh, unknowing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to remember what I thought um, in in years past before when I started. I I think that by that point I remembered uh, and and knew about. Um, yeah, no, I did know about uh, bacterial um, responses um, uh, to um, to challenges. So I I thought I think I thought yes, there would be something there. Um, it did uh, surprise me just how um, just how similar immune systems would be. Um, to in as you said, in, in, in wildly different creatures. So that was a point that I wasn't quite expecting. But the the idea of um, you know prevalent immunity, I think, uh, didn't surprise me quite as well. Just because I come from microbiology, this is why I like microbiology so much. It's an extreme example of of living systems. It's life not as we are used to thinking about it. Whereas to thinking in terms of humans, in terms of animals, trees, that kind of thing. In in microbes, things. You can see everything, but in a very different way, and 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 I like that, and and so yes, com- knowing this from the start gave me an idea that the evolution of the human uh, the immune system, sorry, uh, is is something that would would probably you know sustain an entire chapter. <laughs> And it definitely did. I found it fascinating to read because I thought at some point we're going to get to something that's just alien. It's going to be completely alien and work completely differently, or we just don't know how it works. And it seems like the, that, that moment never came, which in and of itself to me was very surprising. Yeah. And, and as a, as I was writing it, because the original, the original manuscript, uh, coming out in Australia came out in 2014, and, uh, the, the US version coming out now is an updated version that, uh, we, we worked on, uh, a couple of months ago, so, you know, it's fresh off the, uh, uh fresh off the press, and, uh, I hope, uh, as up to date as possibly can be in popular science. Um, but, uh, when I first started working on a CRISPR, which I suspect, you know, a lot of our listeners would, would have heard about and this has been discussed and so forth and so forth but back then CRISPR was just emerging 
And when I started writing it, it was I had to dig a little bit to find out things about CRISPR and to you know to understand what it is in CRISPR. Why am I suddenly starting to talk about it? Because it is an immune mechanism. And not only that, it's an um, it's it's an adaptable immune mechanism in bacteria, which again is not a thing that you could think uh, that, that you thought might be there. You you, you uh, I thought that bacteria would just have um, sort of um, generic kind of immunity, but no, it's a very complex uh, um, mechanism which has now uh, been adapted to to biotech, to genetic technology that can do things in the lab and lots of labs are working with and producing uh, interesting things way outside microbiology and immunology. It's working, you know, it's it's very widespread uh, kind of technique, uh, but it started out as bacterial immunity. And and so seeing that kind of thing, um, whilst I was rewriting the book, and after it came out, and up till present day, it exploded in you know in popularity, in uh, in adaptations, in applicability. It's really quite uh, gratifying, as it were, to see how this plays out. Uh, not gratifying, you know, to me personally, I had no hand in uh, popularizing it, uh, but but to see. That these new things can come out of uh, of the study of immunity and microbiology um, on a regular basis, and now, as I say in the book, uh, there's a team uh, that is mapping out uh, other possible um, adaptive uh, um, immunity mechanisms in bacteria. And it appears that CRISPR is just one of at least a dozen uh, of these mechanisms, and heaven knows what you know what we can do with these and what that means for our world and for immunity and so forth. And so the, you know the game continues. We have a lot of digging to do, and it doesn't seem to be you know it, it, nature does not seem to run out of uh, interesting things. It's also one of these moments where I have to delightfully remind myself that I often think of complexity as being only for large things. Only large things are large enough to be complex, but uh, often the small things are also really complex in fascinating ways. Yeah, because there's more of them. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So they interact in complex ways. It's so fascinating. Um, Mm -hmm. One of the other things that I found really interesting, and for me was quite unexpected in the book, but uh, also a great sort of thinking way into the idea of the immune system is the sense of self and how the immune system is connected to the body's sense of self. Um, Mm -hmm. Because obviously the immune system is responsible for fighting off and killing cells, bacteria, viruses, things that don't belong. But in order Mm -hmm. to recognize those things, it also, I guess, in some way needs to know what cells and bacteria do belong and should be permitted, which leads to this idea of does the immune system have a sense of self? Mm-hmm. You, it's um, the, the idea of self. The word is uh, is a difficult uh, cell because uh, cell in S E double L because it relates to a lot of other concepts um, in our in our culture in our thinking. Um, but uh, the concept itself is again very basic, very fundamental. If you're going to react to things, uh, you need to know. Which things to react against and which you know, to to leave, and this it would be uh, true for the most primordial cell um, 
to host any sort of immune system and up to you know our our immune system here and we all know that sometimes and this is very telling and i i do uh speak about this in the book obviously um that sometimes the immune system gets things wrong uh hence autoimmune uh, illnesses um and conditions and allergies and um and that kind of thing so you can see that this very complex mechanism that has very very difficult decisions to make on a constant basis not surprisingly, sometimes doesn't doesn't have a 100% hit rate, and that's I suppose forgivable, uh, although highly unpleasant um, sometimes. But uh, that thing, that capability, that skill uh, is very fundamental. You have to know uh, when you when you uh, when you have when you are a system like that, you have to know what to react against and what to, and, and how to temper your reaction and so forth. Um, you could see that um, playing out in um, in clinical microbiology and immunology, for instance, uh, in the idea that um, immunity uh, is the immunological response is a battle against uh, invading microbes and. In earlier, you know, from 1950s, 1960s, 1970s, you had that kind of metaphor, the military metaphor, you know, here they come, the baddies, and the immune system reacts, and it fights, and it wins, and so forth, and so forth. But now that we've, as a, as a, as a, as we understand, sorry, that, that we actually have quite a lot of microbes in and on our body and they're living there beneficially and peacefully and so forth. The immune system doesn't battle and conquer and win against them and it shouldn't. Uh, Hang on, we say, then this is a little bit more complicated than we used to think. This is not a binary thing of here's a microbe, let's kill it or, you know, or or not. This is a tempered reaction. The immune system is making judgments it says this one okay this one i can live with this is fine this is fine this is fine this one isn't this one i have to uh, i have to react um and 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 that that uh, means that there's an ongoing conversation uh, going on in our bodies uh, and a sort of negotiation process which obviously if you're um if you're a smart pathogen you you can try and use that and then um and sneak past but most of the time the immune system uh carries on these processes and it does it uh, very well likewise in reacting and that's even more difficult uh, in a sense uh reacting to um, to the body's own cells an immune system has a very fundamental role to play in uh, preventing um um, uh, growth, cancerous growth, and so forth. Uh, so finding out when a when a, a body's cell has you know gone over to the dark side and has lost uh, its breaks and is now um, multiplying uh, repeatedly uh, and uncontrollably, and it needs to be put down. That kind of thing um, is a very delicate thing for for an immune reaction to to figure out. So that. That means that our immune system is again uh, has evolved to be a very um, a very precise mechanism. That was definitely one of the pieces that made me think more carefully about the inherent complexity of the immune system. The idea that the immune system needs to be able to repel foreign invaders, so repel mm-hmm. diseases, things exterior that are, are come in and are not sort of part of the body and that are dangerous mm-hmm. to the body, but some of them 
are not necessarily bad. And in some cases, if we look at some of the research now on things like gut bacteria, some of that bacteria is good and is quite helpful to us. But also the idea of cancerous cells and there, it's our own body and our own cells kind of going mm-hmm. catastrophically wrong that the immune system also needs to be able to respond to, which to me just is illustrative of how complex that system has to be. Also thinking about organ donations. I mean, it doesn't just recognize a liver cell because if you replace someone's liver, you have to suppress their immune system. So that means our immune system recognizes our liver, but not some other human's liver. And and to, to add a further level of complexity, and because uh, the scientists thinking about this uh, in, in earlier days were mostly or almost exclusively male, they somehow didn't quite uh, think about the fact that a lot of humans for a period of uh, uh, of time throughout their lives will have other humans inside them. Um, and, you know, one or two mothers, uh, somewhere in the labs would have, would have really helped. Um, and now that we're, we're thinking about this more seriously, we're going, hang on, these, the, there are two immune systems here, there are two immune profiles here, and they are not the same. Obviously, you know, no two humans are are uh, completely like an immune uh, uh, profile, which is why if you implant one person's uh, organ into, you know, liver or um, or something like that, a kidney, uh, into another human, you have to have immunosuppression. You have to calm down uh, the recipient's immune system so it doesn't um, freak out um, about the the implanted organ. But here is an entire person. Here is a fetus, and it has a different profile. What happens there? How How does that work for the maternal immune system how does it temper itself down uh and what about the fetus how how does the fetus not react to the fact that you know, there's a lot of maternal blood inflowing through it and so on and so forth a, a very very complicated dialogue going on there uh throughout pregnancy and it's not just a dialogue of you know oh you're you're okay you're not a pathogen you're a baby uh i will you know i will not react against you but uh, the maternal immune system um throughout pregnancy and afterwards um um educates the fe- the fetal and uh, newborn's immune system uh and tells it uh, here are things that are threatening. Here are things you should be aware of. Here are things that are not threatening. Here are things you should get used to and not uh, panic about and so forth. Um, so that's uh, that's an added layer of uh, immune, you know, distinguishing a, a friend from foe that that goes on, you know, obviously, in every person's life, um, early life, uh, and and it didn't quite get the attention it deserved until uh, recent decades. Sometimes you just need some women in the lab to make some of yes, those connections. Yes. <laughs> there you go. I, it, 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 it was ultimately yeah, a, a male uh, uh, scientist who, who, who figured out that we need to, to look into it. But uh, my contention, I'm happy to be overruled, but my contention is that had we had more women in, in immunology at that point in the 1960s, we might have gotten to that earlier. It's definitely one of those times when probably you, a diversity of experience and a diversity of thought would have helped us get there a little faster, but. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's, yeah, that's, that's an entire, you know, history and uh, sociology of, uh, of science uh, project that, uh, you know, I'll, I'll leave to somebody else. <laughs>
to to complete. It's it, I'd love to read it, but uh, uh, but it's you know it's an entire world of of research there you know, waiting to be discovered. So just before we leave, uh, one of the things that I quite liked about your book as well is like right on the first page, you explicitly say that you're not going to get into any of the sort of health advice, how to boost your immune system, strengthen it, train it, etc., which I found quite nice because it prepares you for what you're going to get in part because there is so much of this kind of vaguely sketchy, sciencey sounding, but sometimes not very evidence based dare I say, bunk out there about the immune system. Um, and it was nice to yeah. hear you say on page one, that not only were you not going to deal with it, you just weren't going to get into that topic broadly at all. The good stuff. Or yeah. The bad. <laughs> yeah. And, and pretty early on, I think um, I don't have the book in front of me, but in, in the very first pages, I also have a footnote. The first time I mentioned the word vaccine, I put a footnote in saying, Essentially, look, if you're a vaccination skeptic, as it were, um, close the board, close the book and walk away. This, you know, this, there is no point in, for either of us in carrying this on. I, I might have been a little bit, uh, I don't know, confrontational in that, but I find that discussion, that kind of, uh, dialogue, very wearisome. Uh, I, I try to engage in it and, you know, in other, uh, times in my life and I've, I've been there, done that. I'll leave it to people stronger than I to carry on the, uh, that conversation. What I wanted to say in the first pages is this is a book that tries very, very hard to stick to the evidence and to stick to, you know, the, the scientific ideas rather than, as you say, you know, all sorts, all, all these gloopy ideas, uh, um, uh, that that are that are around, and secondly, that this is a book about immunology rather than health. There are a lot of health books. Sometimes they are very good. It's, it's, um, books uh, concentrating on what one might do to improve one's health and why these things uh, improve one's health and so forth. Some of them are good. I encourage you to read them. I encourage you to follow the recommendations and so forth. This isn't one of them. Uh, because and. And I think that's I'm sort of you know, marking out the territory that the book will cover because I like to you know to have the reader informed about what they're going to be reading. I, I wouldn't like uh, a reader to go, "Hang on, this is chapter four, and I don't have any advice uh, that I can follow. Um, I've been robbed." So no, this is this is something else. This is talking about the immune system from a scientific rather than um, medical point of view, uh, which you know I thought there weren't that many books doing that out there. So marking out my territory, as it, uh, uh, as it were. Maybe not a very good marketing strategy, so repelling readers right and left, but uh, I feel honesty is worth it. I found it quite refreshing. And also, I think as a side effect, is that your book deals very little in speculation, even though sometimes that's the most kind of headline grabbing speculative health, speculative science, you know, what this could mean for future healthcare, etc, etc. Your your book is very good at um, not engaging in that kind of speculation, even though there is so much out there that you could leapfrog off of. Um, it's quite clear in the few occasions that it does speculate, and the speculation is not health-related. It's very much on some of the mechanistic things um, that might happen 
that might be going on uh, and some of the different kinds of theories as to how the immune system is dealing with certain things. But it was quite refreshing to be able to read about the mechanisms and the history without necessarily having to get into all of the headline grabbing, will it or won't it uh, jazz hands, as it were. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, promises uh, have have been and are being made in the in the medical field, right and left, about you know, here's this thing. This will transform uh, medicine. This will you know give you twenty more years of life. This will you know this will benefit everybody. And you, you see sometimes that unfortunately, you know, five years go past and oh, actually it didn't you know it didn't get past phase three clinical trials. Oh well, back to the drawing board, which is. A necessary element of you know scientific discovery. That's that's how science works. Uh, but when because because discourse these days is a little bit uh, populist uh, sometimes, and and that does um, trickle into scientific reporting as well. Unfortunately, not all of it. Obviously, uh, there's some very very good stuff out there, including this podcast. Um, but but headline grabbing is is a thing and i feel that it is to the detriment of um of science as an as a human endeavor to uh, to assist this kind that kind of dynamic you know promising and promising and promising and people go oh 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 and, and then promise you know the thing that was promised fails to occur occur and and so people become jaded and go oh yeah this will cure cancer sure because you know, we've been told that, and then it's not happened, and so forth. Uh, so, I, yeah, I, I try to, as it were, present uh, a little bit of the antithesis. Although I'm optimistic about uh, about immunity and, and science and so forth, it progresses very, very well. Only not uh, where the spotlight is aimed necessarily. Uh, the, the progress uh, made is usually um, is usually more quiet. Usually takes longer than uh, than you might think. And, and is usually rolled out in a way that doesn't make the headlines, but does make it into physicians, um, um, offices and laboratories and hospitals. And, and so it's not, it's not very evident until you go, Oh, actually, we, we've been, you know, we've been doing this for a decade and it's been saving lives right and left. Oh, actually, good, good. Well done. Uh, right ho. Uh, and off we go. But yeah, I, I don't, I'm not a headliney kind of uh, writer. What can I say? See, Maybe I should have been. I would have sold more copies. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of this tension between the science research that is searching for instant applicability versus kind of science research that is searching for just knowledge. It doesn't know what applicability it might have. It's just trying mm -hmm. to understand and learn. And quite yeah. often the applicability comes much later after we really completely understand a thing or at least much better under have a much better understanding of how something works or doesn't work or how a mechanism um, is predictable that we can then mm -hmm. make it applicable in some facet. Uh, sometimes we look at science as a search for new applications, but I think sometimes that's the wrong way. I think you happen. Sometimes applications just come to us once we know something really well, rather than trying to find a thing that will do a certain task. And sometimes that works too. There are definitely cases where we have gone in search yeah. of something. I think uh, drug research sometimes is like that. We're searching for things that will do something. But also, if you look at some of our most successful drugs, like antibiotics, those were happy accidents as well. So... Yeah, and and that I, you know, I think there's definitely room for both, and and that 
does indeed happen, uh, and I won't be the one to steer policy in the way of you know giving more funding to basic research or giving more uh, funding to ap- uh, applicable research, applied research. Sorry, uh, but I will point out that this is actually hearkening back to to the strategies employed by the immune system. So you have like the innate immune system going for the uh, the very obvious candidates, like, and then you have. Um, a very uh, the the adaptive immune system going on a bit of a tangent and um, and producing a lot of stuff, a lot of uh, material, uh, and expanding a lot of resources on things that are almost but not quite useless uh, most <laughs> of the time. <laughs> you know, all these again, all these antibodies that will never be, you know, will never encounter their their antigen and are wasted and so forth. But then once in a very long while, that one of these millions of uh, of, of antibodies and so forth uh, does you know bring home the the big one, and so our bodies are um, are okay uh, with devoting resources to that system because once in a while it really pays off, and I think that's a you know that's a useful model for uh, for for us to follow. I love the analogy of almost but not entirely useless. I think that's a great analogy because that little bit that's not entirely useless can sometimes be so profoundly required to get to the next mm-hmm. step or to understand something, something else. All of those yeah. things that we know that are so instrumental in any kind of applied use of science it all rests on this kind of pyramid of other information. And some of that information mm-hmm. people could argue is no, was not necessary, but it was necessary to build a foundation to get to that point that is an application. Yeah. Once in a while you need a moonshot. <laughs> exactly. Idan, thank you so much for your time today. It's a really interesting book. I very much enjoyed reading it. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. It was a blast. If you want to learn more about Idan Ben-Barak or his book, Why Aren't We Dead Yet? The Curious Person's Guide to the Immune System, we have links to get you started in the show notes for this episode, which, as always, you can find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders. 